If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and grab it and make your way to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue through the series on Living Hope. And if you are a guest here, um, thank you for being here with us this morning. I, I pray that you're encouraged this morning through the Word of God and through our worship to Him. Uh, maybe you're kind of new to uh, who Jesus is, maybe new to the Bible, um, the, the claims about Christ. We're glad that you're here too. I pray that as we open up God's Word and we talk about it today, this is just maybe a start of your faith journey and loving and trusting in Jesus Christ. I pray that for you this week. Uh, this is a, a great book that we've been going through, First Peter. We're about halfway through now. We're going to finish chapter 2. And so if you've missed the first part of it, Living Hope, the title of the series, is a, it's a great way to know what's been going on. Peter has been encouraging believers in how we have a living hope. And the reason why we have a living hope is because it's founded in a living Savior, Jesus Christ, who didn't just die, but rose from the grave. And it's in his resurrection that our hope finds its roots. And so if you haven't been here the first part, that catches you up a little bit. And if you are new, I would really just encourage you to stick six. We said around here, stick six weeks so you can kind of get to know who we are as a church, but also let us get to know who you are and see if this is where God desires for you to be at West Cabarrus Church. All right, let's look at chapter 2 of 1 Peter. We'll pick up in verse 18, and we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter. This is what the word of the Lord says. Servants, be, subjects, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was the seat found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who ju judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Pray with me this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God. Help us today to, to grow in our faith and our trust in you as we journey through this broken world. But we also praise you that you won't leave this world broken, but you're coming back again to make all things new. And we ask that you would come Lord, soon. But until you come, Lord, help us to faithfully follow your example that you have set for us as you walk this earth. Now let me invite you to pray and ask for God to speak to your heart and your mind through his word this morning. Use this time of silence right now to pray and ask him to speak to you through his word. Take a second to pray for me also, that as I open up this passage and expound God's word to us, that it would serve us well as we seek to serve the Lord. Would you pray for me now? 
Holy Spirit, this morning, we ask that you would bring comfort to our hearts. And at the same time, you convict us of sin so that we could live to righteousness. Lord, would you change us today for your glory and for our good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, this passage that I just read really does two things for us. One is it's going to give us just a picture of our world, just an understanding of our world as it truly is and its brokenness and and its struggles. And then it's going to talk about how we live with a living hope in this world. And so first, let's rest and stop for just a second to look at the reality of the world in which we live in. Our world is full of injustices and it is sin sick. It's sin sick. Our world has injustices and it's sin sick. Now, some of you might be like, Ryan, I already knew that. Like, that's, that's not a surprising truth to me. You live life for a little while, you see injustices, you see the brokenness of this world, you see sorrows, you see suffering. So why, why do we need this point? Why are we going to talk about this? And the reason why is because we have to understand that the Bible that you hold in your hand is not a fairy tale. It's not a make-believe book where we come each week and we read a little bit and it gives us a little boost in the arm and encouragement for the week. Like, that's ultimately not what the Bible is. It's not a fairy tale. It is a true book of history. And it's the reality of our world showing how God is moving and how God is working to even fix those things that are broken. And so when you read this passage, you and I see in multiple places words that describe our world as broken and sin sick. So I want us to pause and look at that, but we will get to the hope. Trust me, I promise you, before the end of our time, we will get to the hope that we have in Christ. But first, let's just stop and realize our need for Christ. Let's stop and just realize how broken our world truly is, and honestly, how broken our hearts and our souls truly are, and we need him. So you see, I'm going to hit three things in this passage of injustices or suffering. And first, you find at the very beginning of verse 18, he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, we could skim over this and run right by it and not think twice about it, but believers, I just think we need to pause for a second. We need to unpack this this reality of, of kind of brokenness in our world, injustice in our world. You see, he's going to use the word servants here as opposed to slaves because there's a difference between what happened in the 18th and 19th century in the transatlantic slave trade, which we'll talk about, but what happened in Rome was different, which we'll start to unpack that. So what I want to do is we look at this word and kind of we get this vibe of like slavery and servants and servanthood. Like what is all of this about and what does God's word have to say about it? Because God does speak to this often in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So as I give us kind of a historical overview of some of this stuff um, throughout history, kind of the servanthood, I just want to say a couple things first. I want us to understand as we talk about this injustice, I want to be clear, what I'm about to say is in no means a way of defense for ancient slavery. Okay, this is just an explanation. All right, I'm not advocating for it. I'm just explaining it as you read historical textbooks. You got that? You good? Okay, it's important you understand that. You see, slavery, sadly, is common all throughout history. You go and you read the 
the, the pages of history, you'll see that different cultures, different decades, different centuries, you're going to find slavery spans all throughout it. The brokenness in our world spans through all of this. But also the thing that you'll find fascinating is if you do give this a deep study, is that the abolitionist movement is founded from God's people and God's word. Until Christ came, you won't see anything through the history books where people fought to abolish slavery. Now, you will see in history, people are like, I don't want to be a slave, so let's revolt, let's rebel, let's murder people and kill people. But you won't see anything about the abolishment of slavery until you get to Christ, his resurrection, and God's people trying to live out these truths. You can actually go and research the Cappadocian Fathers. Christian believers are the ones that coined the title human rights. It was something that Christians termed because they read the pages of Scripture and saw that we're all created in the image of God. We have value because God has created us as male and female in his image. So Christians fought diligently to abolish slavery, but they didn't do it through rebellion and revolt and killing people. So as Peter writes this, he's, he's addressing an issue and trying to work to transform a culture. But it wasn't just a culture that you found in Rome. It's one that you can find all throughout history. I mean, you can go back to Egypt. And the slavery that happened in Egypt, slavery very likely that worked to build the, the pyramids, was race-based slavery, where they picked a certain race of people, they enslaved them and made them work for them. They would actually go out and, what the Bible would say, man-steal. They would rob and steal people away from their families and unjustly force them into slavery. You even read about that in the Bible and how God hated that and how God rescued the Jewish people out of Egypt and freed them. But it wasn't just in Egypt. It wasn't just in Rome. You continue to turn the pages. You see it happen in Babylon and Mesopotamia. You see what happened in, uh, uh, in Persia actually was about double the amount of slave trade that was happening in Europe during that same time of the 18th, 19th century. I mean, this is sad. It's everywhere. This injustice we find all over the place. But God's word speaks to it. In Exodus chapter 21, as God frees his people, he says, we're not going to treat people that way. We're not going to do that. And so he literally puts, there's a law in place that you would have to have a death penalty if you man stole. If you stole somebody away from their family and you forced them into slavery. There was a death penalty attached to that. And if you read the Old Testament, there are not a lot of sins or wrongs or laws that there was a death penalty attached to it. But this form of slavery, this kidnapping of people, God spoke harshly against. Now, if you do read in the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus, what you'll find is that the Old Testament regulates slavery, although it does not endorse slavery. I'll say that again, you'll see different rules or regulations or laws concerning slavery, but God never endorses it. He doesn't. In the same way, you read the Old Testament, you'll see that there's rules in place as you would go through a divorce. There's rules and regulations there, but there's not approval from God. God said he hates divorce. That it's something that he doesn't like. And so God isn't putting these rules and regulations in place because he endorses divorce. No, he looks and he realizes this is a broken world. 
This world has a lot of injustices. And so he put even rules in place around divorce because he knew it was harming a lot of families. And people were suffering and going through sorrow and pain. And so God put certain rules in place to help provide for people. You even see that, that God addresses uh, how the world would look at slavery and how God's people would treat people that would work for them, people that you would look at and say that they're in servitude. It was never a permanent thing. You get to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, at most, at most, it lasted six or seven years, and then you were given freedom and, and relief from that. At most, God put all these things in place because he knew this is not how you were meant to live. And we'll see here in a second, the New Testament proclaims some of the exact same things. And so if you read the Old Testament, you'll see over and over again how God opposes many of these things. And then we'll see what happened here in America in the 18th and 19th century. And and you got to ask the question, how in the world did people who profess to be Christians justify this act? Justify this atrocity? How did they do it? Well, literally, they would cut these passages out of the Bible. My daughter and I went to Washington, D.C. back in the spring, and one of the Bibles they have there, sadly, is called the Slave Bible, where people who supported slavery would come in and they would cut passages like Exodus 21 out of the Bible and Leviticus 25 out of the Bible, and then they would make their own Bible. And we can sit there and be like, oh my goodness, how in the world could people do that? Well, let's just be honest. We, we all can probably think of people that we know profess Christ but live nothing like him. Or how many times can we say that we are followers of Christ and then when we come to inconvenient passages that we don't live out, we just kind of ignore them and we move on to live how we want to, right? That's what happens. And that's what happened to to these people in the 18th and 19th century. And when people do that, when we ignore God's word and the command of God's words, very dark, evil things happen, just like the transatlantic slave trade. Now, as we kind of think about history in the past, fast forward to history at the time right here where Peter is. As you look at Rome, Now, Rome had a total different perspective of what Egypt did with race-based slavery and what, sadly, what we did in America. What Rome did is vastly different from those two. You can go and read historically what happened in Rome, um, somewhere between 30 and 50 percent, so we'll just say roughly a third of people in Rome were under servitude. Their whole economy was built upon this. And it was for, for a number of different reasons. And you could become a servant to somebody else from a number of different reasons. Um, one of them was because you uh, were sadly kidnapped and then sold into slavery. Rome, actually, as a government, worked to stop a lot of this stuff because in the uh, Mediterranean Sea, they, they came out there and they stopped a lot of pirates who were stopping people and capturing them and kidnapping them. And so that actually became less and less in the time of Rome, which was a good thing as they cracked down on it. But a second reason that you might end up into slavery or servanthood was that you were a war criminal. You were captured, and so you were sentenced to to life in prison. Or maybe you weren't even a war criminal, you were just a criminal guilty of something. And one of your sentences would be that you would have to serve an indefinite period of time. Third 
you found in Rome, which was actually a pretty common one, was debt bondage. They didn't have credit card companies where you just continued to swipe and maybe I'll pay off the minimum amount. There came a point where you couldn't pay because uh, your, your debt got so high that you would become a slave to somebody else until you could pay off that debt of how much money that you owed them. We'll look at this in a second, but Paul, the apostle, specifically wrote to believers on how to respond to this kind of slavery. The last, the most prevalent way of slavery in Rome is where you would actually commit yourself to basically an internship with somebody for a period of time. You would negotiate how long this is going to be, how long you're going to be a servant for this person and work for them, three years, five years, seven years, ten years, whatever it would be. And you would kind of have an agreement. Okay, you'll care for my family and you'll give us a place to stay and you'll provide for us, all of those things. That was going on this time. And it's interesting, you can go and read. There was actually one benefit in choosing this route of servitude in, in the Roman government is if you serve so many years, you could actually have the, um, the, the blessing of not being able to pay taxes after you got out of it. So it's kind of a way to climb the corporate ladder in Rome. There's even a story you can go read in the history books where a prince of a king, so he was very high official, didn't want to pay taxes. Who does, right? And so what he did is he put himself into this kind of servitude for a period of time so that when he finished up, he'd never have to pay taxes to Rome again. And that's what he did. And so that was one of the ways that they did this. Now, I don't want to paint like this beautiful picture of, of Roman servitude, and it was just amazing because though it had some things that were done better than slavery in the past, Peter is addressing this letter to people who have made these commitments or have racked up this debt or have struggled in these different areas and ended up in this position, and he tells them that there's going to be both kind people who lead you but also unjust. And so it wasn't all perfect and great in the time of Rome either. There was still a brokenness. There's a sense of injustice of what was going on. And so, what did God have to say to these people? We already addressed it in the Old Testament, but he's going to do it again in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. God's word is going to address this man-stealing, this kidnapping of people and forcing them into slavery. He's going to call it sin. The word that's used in 1 Timothy is enslavers, which is literally man-stealers. The Bible says it's wrong, Old Testament and New Testament. God's word condemns those things. God's word also speaks to those who had got into that debt and now they're in debt slavery where they've racked up so much debt and now they're enslaved to somebody else. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes and he's addressing this kind of social implications of coming to Christ. He's addressing things like, well, if I'm married to a non-believer and I've trusted Christ, do I leave them? Or if I've kind of been this bondservant serving somebody else, do I, do I get out of that now because I'm free in Christ? And if you go read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul will say, no, no. If you're a bondservant, stay there and fulfill your commitment. And then when you gain your freedom and you pay off your debt, don't go back to it. Don't go back to it. So God's word addresses this in a number of different places that we as Christians need to know. Because somebody shouldn't come to us and be like, well, the Bible supports this. No, it doesn't. The Bible speaks of this. And I, re I think the reason why Peter is framing it like he is is because he's like, the way we fix this is by transforming our lives and transforming a culture, not by rebellion or revolt or killing the people that are leading. No, we submit as unto the Lord, which is what we looked 
at last week. And so our world has struggled with this sin sickness, not just in the 18th and 19th century, even today. So we need to understand that God isn't blind to the injustices. He sees them. He hates it, and he is going to address it. So I know that we spent a long time on that, but I feel like that's something that's worth us pausing for a minute as believers and considering. But that isn't the only injustice that we find in this passage. It also talks about, in verse 19, that there are sorrows, there's suffering that happens, and it's unjustly, or it's an injustice. God's Word is saying that it, as you look at the world, you will see injustices. You'll see it out there. And this word, literally from, from, from the Greek, which this is written in, is scolios, which is where we get the word scolios. It means crooked. So what God's Word is saying is we look at all this stuff, and not that it's okay. No, it is crooked. It is bent. It isn't straight. It isn't the way it's meant to be. There's something broken about it. And he's saying this brokenness, this injustice, brings sorrow into our hearts, suffering into our lives. Once again, I know you don't need me to convince you of any of these things. You've seen it. You've felt it. Some of you have seen injustices that have happened in your family, where families are literally ripped apart and broken because one part of the family starts to slander another part of the family. Or a wife starts to speak ill of a husband or a husband of a wife to somebody else. And these cracks of injustices, these crooked things start to happen and it starts to break down family. Some of you have seen it wreck a workplace, right? Where you see things done unjustly at a workplace. And how it breaks the fabric of the way it's supposed to be. I mean, some of you all very recently might have been taken advantage of on a business venture. You see, we, we find this all throughout the scriptures that bring sorrow and suffering to our life because it's crooked, it's bent, it's a broken world. Our lives see it. But uh, the other thing it mentions here is not just slavery and it's not just injustice of um, things being done unjustly, but another key word here that you find in verse 20, and you'll see it again, speaking of what Christ has done for us, bearing our sin later. And it's the word doing wrong, some translations have, or in verse 20, sin. This is showing us the brokenness of our world. And honestly, the root of that brokenness of injustice and slavery. Now, too often when we think about injustice and we look at our world, we start to think about injustice done against us. But we need to stop and pause and think of the injustice we have done against God. We live in a broken world that can be quick to see the fault in this world, but never see the fault in us. And we need Christ to fix our brokenness, to fix our hearts. You see, it's our shameful, sinful hearts that are bleeding out all of these things into the culture. And we need a Savior. We need Christ Jesus. And so when we read this, it's highlighting our sin. It's highlighting our brokenness. So what are we supposed to do when we live in a world like this? When we see the sin within us, we see the injustices out in the world, when we look at history and we see all of the brokenness in the past, how in the world do we live? What are we supposed to do? Well, it tells us in verse 19 that we are to be mindful of God. Did you see that? 
For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows and sufferings unjustly. We should be mindful of God. And this word mindful combines two words together. To see and alongside. Which means we should look at our situation at work or in relationships or in society. And we should see that situation alongside God. Look at God and see him working in it. I mean, do you live mindfully of God? Do you see God in your everyday life? Or do you look at this broken world and you forget God? You come in here and you sing songs about God and his greatness and his goodness and his saving attributes. And then do you walk out of here and you're not mindful of God at all when you get into your workplace? You're like, well, God, I'll come back to you next week here in this building. Do you see God alongside of of the different struggles and sorrows in your life? Or do you just kind of check that out and you leave God and say, well, ignorance is bliss. No, we are to engage our mind, not divorce our mind. When we see the injustices, we should pray that God would fix it. We should work diligently to repair this broken world until Christ comes back. We are working on the behalf of God. So are we being mindful of God? Do we sing the praises that he is the ruler over everything here on Sunday? And then on Tuesday, we remember that he's the God of all nations. And on Wednesday, we remember that he's the one that created everything and holds everything together. Are we being mindful of God in the midst of our brokenness? Now, we aren't just called to be mindful of God. This passage tells us to also model God in our lives. That leads us to our second point. How do we have living hope in a world of injustice? We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Jesus faced the greatest, the greatest wrongs, the greatest injustices. He is a pure, holy, spotless lamb who died as a criminal, though he was innocent. He felt the greatest injustices, the God who created it all, judged by his creation. And we see through the life of Christ how we, as believers, are called to walk in an unjust world. I love the language that Peter uses here. In verse 21, he says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, this word for example here is actually like an education term. It's a kind of elementary term that they would use. And what it was was when you were there at this time, Peter's time in Rome, and you were a child, in order to learn how to write, what they would do is they would give you an example. Hapagramo is what that term literally is, which is to write over. And that's how they would teach kids how to write. They would bring this this tablet out that was kind of chiseled or marked, and on there they would have letters that you were supposed to trace, and so they would lay it down in front of you, and you would trace over those different letters, and then they would give you a piece of paper to put on top, 
If your hands were too weak or you didn't know, you would, at that age, start to slowly trace the letters that were written before you. Until when you were done, what you had was the exact imprint, the example that was already etched into place. And what Peter is saying is, we're not Jesus. We're not that. But what we're supposed to do is look at this and allow our lives to trace his example. That's what it means when it says example here. That we would write over the, the, the foundation that Christ has placed. We look at how Jesus dealt with injustices and we would say, yes, I'm going to take my life and trace over that. So that even if people never see Jesus, that at least they'll see Jesus in me as I follow him and model him. So we're not just mindful of him, we model his example. And then he gives us several ways in which Jesus endured in suffering in his life. How Jesus handled it. And the first is that Jesus kept doing good. This is what we're meant to trace. This is what we're supposed to model in our life, that Jesus continued to do good. Verse 22, Jesus committed no sin. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He resisted every temptation that we would face. He resisted it. He came face to face with the injustices of this world. And though he was tempted to sin, he had no sin in his life. He never repaid evil for evil. In verse 22, it also tells us that Jesus did not deceive. This is a way that he's doing good. And I believe the reason why he says this is because we all have the temptation when we see brokenness in this world that we have to be the ones that fix it in our own power and our own ability. And so when we see something off, yeah, we just don't think that's the way it should be. Then we maybe just deceive a little bit to make it better. We, we have taxes coming up soon enough, you know, and we're doing taxes. And we're like, you know what, it seems a little unjust. The government's taking this much of my money, so I'm just going to deceive a little bit to make this injustice right, right? Or we'll, we'll, we'll look around and we'll see that, man, there's a promotion that's coming up at work, and it would be so unjust for this person to get that promotion. And so I'm just going to kind of deceive a little bit, speak uh, ill and slander, and maybe lie a little bit about this person to higher up so that they don't think as highly of them as they should. We deceive because we think we want things to be the way we want them to be. What we find is Christ looked at this broken world and instead of deceiving to fix it, instead he steps into it and he dies to fix it. He dies to take these deceptions on himself. Man, I, I just believe as Jesus looked around and saw all these other people, and even us today deceiving, the temptation to respond to that. But as Jesus sees these wrongs, he didn't retaliate. You see that in verse 23. All these wicked, evil things done against Christ, and Christ does not retaliate evil for evil. He does not revile as he has been reviled. Now think about this. How people spoke evil of Christ, and even as they were about to take him to the cross, the soldiers beat him and said, prophesy, tell us who hit you. And then they pulled his beard out and they spit in his face. How much that Jesus could have 
brought an end to all of it. And yet he didn't return evil for evil. Instead, he went to the cross and he hung on the cross and he died. And he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive the ones who have spit in my face. Jesus saw the greatest injustice and he continued to do good. How? How in the world was Jesus able to do that? And how are we able to do that today? When we see brokenness and injustice in this world. Well, I think we have to grasp the end of verse 23 in order to do that. Jesus was able to endure pain and suffering like this because his foundation was in the just judge. His conscience was set on the coming judgment. You see that? He entrusted himself to this. He committed himself to the just judge. How do we have living hope in this broken world? As we realize we're not the judge. And this isn't the end. See, we don't know everything that everybody deserves. But God does. We entrust ourselves to him. We need to remember that Jesus came and died for our sins, but he's coming back again. And he will judge. He will judge. And Jesus entrusted the wrath to the Father's judgment. Would we do the same? You see, the temptation for us is we think, well, if I let this thing go, if I don't punish this person for the thing they've done wrong, then justice is going to slip away. Justice will never happen. And you've got to understand that's not a biblical perspective. That's not a biblical worldview. Some of us are afraid if I forgive somebody and I release this, then they get away. And God's word is saying no. No wrong will, will ever just be gotten away with. Every single sin will be punished either by the wrongdoer who doesn't trust in Christ and will spend eternity in hell or by Christ taking that wrong on himself on the cross, paying that debt that we owed. Nobody gets away with anything. Hold oh, that we would find peace trusting in the just judge. That's what Jesus did. That's what verse 23 tells us. Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Lastly, let's trace Christ's example by bringing salvation to any who would believe. By bringing salvation to any who would believe. Christ looks at the brokenness and injustice of this world and he comes bringing salvation to it. Jesus said when he came the first time, I came not to condemn, but in order to bring salvation. And Jesus comes and faces all of these things in our world in order to extend salvation to any who would believe. So that we wouldn't have to bear the weight of our judgment for the things that we've done wrong. He does it in our place. Verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's him hanging on the cross to die for us. Now we can't be Jesus and give salvation to people. We can't provide salvation like Jesus did by giving us his life, but we can trace the life of Christ and point people to the only way of salvation, to pointing people to Christ. 
And then Peter does something, I, I believe, extremely beautiful right here. He takes this, this quote in verse 24 and 25. He kind of splices it from several passages in the, the book of Isaiah. But he changes the, the pronouns to make them very personal to us. He says, he himself bore our sins that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the overseer and the shepherd of your souls. Peter takes more of this kind of broad prophecy of the past, and he brings it to the present day, and he says, this is the fulfillment, that Jesus died, not just for sins in general, but for your sins. Jesus hung on the cross. By his wounds, we are healed. And he did this for our sins. We are healed. You have been healed. We were straying away in our sins, and Christ has now restored our souls as our good shepherd. But this only works if you receive it from God. John Wesley um, helped start the Great Awakening here in America. But before he came to Christ, he wanted to be a missionary, but he wasn't even a believer, which is weird. That's not how it works, right? Christ changes us, and then we go share the good news and how he can change. And so he's on this boat ride from America, or from the UK to America. And on this boat ride over there, there's a massive storm that hits this boat. And people are, are fearful of their lives. And there's a group of people on the boat that are singing praises to God in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the storm. And John Wesley is huddled up in the corner fearing for his life, even though he was the chaplain of the boat. <laughs> and when the storm subsided, he goes and he talks to these believers and he's like, you have to help me understand how to have what you have. How did you have hope in, in the midst of that storm? And they asked, do you believe that Christ suffered, died, and rose for you? And Jonathan Wesley responded and said, yeah, I believe that Jesus died and rose. And they said, that wasn't the question. Do you believe that he died and rose for you? And Wesley said, I hope so. He said, that's, they, they responded, that's the wrong answer. It's not a hope. You know, you believe, you trust, you receive Christ, what he has done for you. For you. It's one thing to have a propositional truth, but it's another thing for it to be personal. You can look and say, you know what, that person would be a good husband. That's a propositional truth. But to say that person is my husband, that's personal. And that's what Peter's trying to get us to do right here. Christ died for your sins and for my sin. By his wounds, you are healed. Is it personal? Do you know him as your Savior? Do you trust in him? Are you returning to him, the shepherd and the overseer of your soul? Have you made Christ your Savior, bow your heads with me. If you have not made Christ your Savior, then do that now. Do that now. And it's not a magical set of words that saves you. 
It is Jesus that saves you. And you pray to him confessing your sin, the things that you have done wrong, and those are the very things that he bore on that tree. It's the very things that by his wounds you are healed. Where you know the the injustices that you have committed, Christ took that on so that you could be forgiven. So that you could have a hope, not just propositionally that Jesus died and rose, but that Christ died and rose for you. And for those of us that have trusted in Jesus Christ, even now, let us return to the shepherd and overseers of our soul, that we be mindful of God in our everyday life. Lord, help us to do that. And at the same time, Lord, would you help us to model you? Would we trace how you lived your life and our life so that if others never see you, that they would see you through us. Christ, help us to live these things out. Lord, forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of our unrighteousness, that we would faithfully follow you and be a light in the dark world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to sing one last song, and it sings and proclaims the excellencies of God. Though our sins, they are many, God's mercy is more. So let's stand and let's sing about the mercy of God now.